and welcome to the first episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I am your host, Anne Wand, and on today's show, we'll be focusing on issues faced concerning the job market for early career researchers. Our guests for today are Dr. Shihab El-Kashab, Dr. Venetia Congdon, from, both from Oxford University, and Dr. Timothy Thurston from the Smithsonian Institute. Thank you for joining us. Um, I suppose we should start off by having each of you tell us what you are drinking for the show, mm. followed by a little bit about yourself. So, Venetia, would you like to start? Hi, uh, I'm Venetia. I'm drinking Elderflower Presse. Uh, so, not quite a cocktail, but there we go. Uh, and uh, I got my uh, doctorate in anthropology from Oxford uh, in October 2015. And since then, I've been trying to keep a foot in academia. Um, I've got a postdoctoral research associateship with Oxford, and um, I've also been working a bit in the private sector most recently in marketing research. Excellent. Shahab? Um, hi, I'm Shahab, and I'm drinking uh, English breakfast tea. Um, I'm currently a junior research fellow in Christchurch at the University of Oxford, um, and I just finished my PhD at the same university last year, and I work on uh, the Egyptian film industry. Great. And Tim? Hi, I'm Tim. I'm currently ruining my decision to be drinking the entirely boring water. Um, <laughs> Good choice. Excellent uh, choice. Yeah, I figure it'll keep me hydrated and all that. But uh, so I did uh, my doctoral work at The Ohio State University in the United States. I'm currently a postdoctoral research fellow at the Smithsonian Institution Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. And starting in September, I'll be taking up a position of lecture at the University of Leeds. Ooh, Leeds. Very nice. Very nice. Are you working on your British accent? That's a trick question, by the way. Uh, I figure it'd be more insulting for me to try. I think that's a very wise idea. <laughs> Um, I say we start off with our first question. Um, I will say when I sent out the notices asking for um, speakers to come on the show, it was a bit crazy. My email got inundated with, please pick me. I have all these issues. I have all these problems. Um, but I decided to pick you three because you had the most interesting backgrounds and you are quite nice looking. I must say it's a very attractive <laughs> crowd here. Uh, but the first question I think we should discuss uh, is regarding job security or the lack thereof. And I was wondering... Uh, if any of you had any comments or stories you would like to share regarding that issue. Okay, well, right. um, I think it was me who raised this. Um, I think, I mean, getting into the academic job market, market after your doctorate is quite a tricky process. And, um, you know, either you, there are a couple of um, academic grants available, but it's there's, there's one small carcass and lots of vultures trying to fight over it um, if you want to study your own area of interest. Otherwise, you kind of have to shoehorn your interests into what's available. Um, so maybe if there's a, a group or it that already exists and you have to go for that. Um, but even if you do manage to get funding or you become part of a group for two or three years, what happens then? There simply is no guarantee that something will come after that. Right. So you don't really know whether you will be spending the rest of your life in academia or whether you will be having to leave to, say, go into the private sector. Right. Um, and, and you had a story of one of your external examiners, if I'm correct, uh, during your thesis events, who, if you could just explain a bit about that situation. Oh, well... Um, I mean, this is more to do with travel. Um, okay. But this was, um, 
it was actually after uh, my thesis defense and I spoke to him about going into academia and, you know, what's it like? What do I, what can I expect? And uh, one thing he said was be prepared to travel. Um, and he actually wasn't prepared to travel. And that put his career back by about 10 years. Wow. You know, he couldn't do that because of family uh, obligations. And, uh, and he said the situation is harder now because... Um, you know, he was always trying to get any job he could, any any lectureship or um, any teaching position possible. But sometimes you do have to work in the private sector, you know, and the you can do lots of grant applications, but that won't go on your CV. So and that's not going to bring money in. So if you you will need to get a job right. if you whilst you're doing those applications. Yeah. And um, so it is it is quite tricky to stay in academia. I would imagine. And, and Shihab, Tim, do you have any comments regarding uh, job insecurity? Um, well, I think going off what Venetia just said, I, I count myself to be among the very lucky few uh, doctoral students who were able to get a postdoc right away and a very good one at that. Um, mm. My position is for, you know, four years and it's uh, research oriented and they're very keen on having me publish and so on. Um, Still, there remains the issue of, um, you know, while I was still applying for that position and for the positions that I'll be applying for later on, um, that you're, you know, applying to, you know, 10, 15, 20, you know, different places and there's no guarantee that you get anything and there's no guarantee about where you'll end up really. I mean, I was quite lucky that I ended up here after doing my PhD here and I was quite happy to stay here um, at the same time. Um, you know, whenever you're in the application round, as everyone uh, who's in the academic world knows, um, it's a very kind of uncertain time. And, it, you know, if if you're committed to wanting to stay in academia, you're in some sense uh, at the mercy of the vagaries of the market and like where you end up, for how long, for what reason. Um, you know, and in my specific case, there, there's an additional factor of, you know, mobility is also associated with um, you know, visas and your ability to stay in certain countries or not. I'm a Canadian citizen working in the UK and my stay in the UK is kind of conditional on uh, a job that I could get here, right? Um, but if I didn't have a job and let's say, my, you know, my partner is here, um, then, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to be able to stay in the UK? What, uh, what about if I'm, you know, forced to move to another country and still want to stay here? I mean, th these are the kinds of questions that go through your head when you're in that application round, I think. And I think that actually ties into something, Tim, that you had said uh, specifically with uh, regards to, you know, having a family and how do you deal with that as an early career researcher? And I was wondering if you could let us know your thoughts about that. Oh, well, many thoughts. Uh, so um, I I obtained my PhD and immediately gave birth to a beautiful daughter. You didn't um, give birth, though, presumably. No, else. <laughs> I immediately became father. No, thank you. I became father to a beautiful daughter. Ah, um, nice. And um, while also beginning work at a new institution uh, as a postdoctoral fellow. And um, the the original question also being about security, one of the one of the really big strains that I personally felt was the difficulty in balancing um, the demands of it was it was originally a one year uh, fellowship with potential for extension uh, and the demands of trying to make sure that I can be extended to keep a roof over my family's head 
while also applying for other positions, while also trying to be a father to a, to a young family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these are, these are all very difficult issues. And, uh, I don't entirely know how I made it through it other than by having a fantastic partner, um, who really, um, really made a lot of sacrifices in her first year, in both of our first years as parents, um, to, to also allow me to try and keep doing the research and doing the publications and, and building up skills in the office and building up credibility in my office, um, that would help me, uh, that, that would help me remain competitive on a, on a, on a difficult job market. Um, I've also benefited from fantastic coworkers at the Smithsonian also who, um, who really supported uh, me in trying to build up the skills that I needed to and supported me in basically in everything. If I needed a day off or two days off to to help with family, and I know not everybody is that fortunate, and I don't know what remedies there would be for that. Um, But it was was certainly something where I recognize I've been very, very lucky, um, but also found it very difficult to try and juggle all of these competing demands uh, Um, at that moment. Well, I will say, because, um, you know, nobody can really see us at the, at, in the studio, but all of us are nodding our heads, I think, in agreement. You know, many of us think all of us are in uh, very serious relationships. Some of us have thought about starting a family, but I think there's an apprehension, you know, especially if your partner has uh, a full-time job, you know, the difficulties of not wanting your partner to have to suffer simply because your job is, is insecure mm-hmm. and could be easily insecure for, for quite some time. Uh, which leads me to uh, another uh, question that we have, and uh, this one comes from Shihav. And he talks about, uh, you wanted to know about the lack of information about available positions and the lack of transparency about selection criteria. And I was wondering if you could expand on that. Well, um, I think, yeah, the two issues are related, um, also related to the whole um, application round uh, that I was, that we were all talking about and uh, the issue of um uh, security that um, uh, was just talked about. Um, and and it's, it's the idea that when you're doing your applications as an early career researcher, first of all, you're not really sure uh, which institutions are hiring for what reasons, right? Um, and there's no kind of, there's limited kind of uh, aggregate uh, job websites, let's say, or you know, um, access to information about different countries if you're willing to move around or, um, you know, smaller positions at specific universities that they tend to keep for internal candidates, let's say, things like that. Um, And at the same time, uh, when you read the job description, it's this very kind of alienating thing because it's like the very standard, you know, we're looking for someone with a PhD who knows a bit about that. But in fact, the selection committees often have much more kind of explicit criteria for who they want to choose and they don't tell you about it and you only know about it because you talk to the more senior colleagues and you're like okay well now I know that this is what they were looking for to begin with but there's no transparency about this and this um, ties into the whole issue of applications because you end up multiplying um, applications that you think you know this is what I can put out there into the world for all these people who might hire me but maybe what I'm trying to make fit into those like implicit selection criteria won't fit at all because I don't know what are these criteria to begin with. And you're in this constant guessing game as to like which positions make more sense for my profile to begin with. Mm -hmm. And also 
you know, what exactly is, is expected of me, right? Um, and I think, yeah. Yeah, if, if I can just say, because that, that's a really interesting point. Um, and I can remember going to a workshop uh, recently. And I, I, I think it's safe in saying that all of our backgrounds are somewhat interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got three anthropologists at the studio. And Tim, you work in folklore. So, I mean, let's be honest, it can be divided into any which direction, depending on where you want to go. Mm. And I, at least from personal experience, I can remember um, applying for a specific job at an institute and I looked at the ins and outs and went, okay, I can definitely take part of my research and apply it to this specific job. And at the end of the day, they said, well, because you don't have a PhD in X, we won't even consider you. But the application never asked for it. Hmm. And on the one hand, you think, okay, well, if I was the one on the other side asking for a person, I'd want to make it as open as possible. And supposedly there was a flood of applicants and they ticked all the boxes. I guess you could say well, you don't have X, so you didn't get in. But it does, you're right, it sends mixed messages and it leaves you feeling quite confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and also I think, as with jobs outside of academia, you often don't get any um, feedback on why your mm-hmm. application was refused. So you have the issue there of, okay, is it just because the way I'd phrased it wasn't suitable or is it because the standard is not appropriate? That's also mm-hmm. something to consider or or just because there was a better candidate you know there's there is so much uncertainty and I would say that um, it would help um, if departments themselves when they have doctoral students could actually be really tough on making sure that students actually know how to do write grants they grant applications they know how to apply for these positions Mm -hmm. I mean I think a lot of us probably are good at writing after having done PhDs. Mm, one but would hope. One would hope. But, <laughs> but, you know, there's always that uncertainty there. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's always good just to, just to be told, OK, no, your writing standard is good. Don't say this. Do say that. Just little pointers that can help you. Absolutely. Uh, Tim, what do you think? Well, I think, um, first of all, I think having, having just gone through uh, a series of applications in the United States and one very fortunately successful one in the United Kingdom, I would say that uh, I, find, I, I personally feel that the UK application system is much more humane than the job. The really? Job. Tell us more. <laughs> well, it's, um, you know, from what I can tell of the US institutions, they don't explicitly state their selection criteria at this, to the same degree. Hmm as many of the UK job advertisements do. Um, can, you, and can you give us so, an example? Sorry, just just so we know. Uh, well, you'll have, I mean, a concrete example would be a lot easier to to pull up a web page. You don't need to name an institution. I want um, you to keep your job. So <laughs> Many, many institutions in the United States, they will have an advertisement and they will say that they're looking for somebody in the field of uh, let's, so I'm also I'm a folklorist, but I'm also a sonologist. So they'll say uh, they're looking for somebody who does, you know, contemporary China. But that's really broad, and it doesn't necessarily tell you all that much information. Mm-hmm. Um, or they want somebody who does social science in contemporary China, maybe even. But that doesn't give you. And and maybe they'll say, and we're especially interested in somebody who's doing film. Um, and I, I, I could I could be construed as doing something like that, but at the same time, um, the 
it, it's it's fairly nebulous exactly what types of things they really want out of that. Mm. Uh, whereas a UK job advertisement, from what I've seen, they'll have a series of selection criteria, and you'll often be asked to uh, to respond to them one, two, three, four, five, right? Mm. Um, and it's and 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 I find that. It doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what they want, but it does give you a chance to uh, explicitly address certain things that 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 the hiring institution is looking for, and how you feel like you fit that. Uh, and I appreciate that. And it's also a lot quicker. Um, the United States positions often drag out over several months before you find out if you've gotten it or not. You find out on a wiki page if they've hired, if they've brought someone in for a Skype interview, even, um, and you won't hear about that until you won't get an official rejection until maybe four or five months later when the final hire has been made. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in in these ways, I do feel like the the U.S. the U.K. system seems a little bit more humane in that you get an opportunity to state your case. A little bit more clearly about what about what it seems that that is wanted, and an opportunity to find out relatively quickly, usually within a month or so, whether or not you're in consideration. See that it's interesting you say that because I, I mean, at least as an American citizen, I get a lot of I get a lot of pressure from my family going, you know, apply to the U.S. and I go, well, nothing personal, but I don't want to move to no man's land. And but at the same time, you got to go where the job is. If if there's more cows than people, then guess what? That means I need to go there. But mm-hmm. um, I think what's really interesting is that there seems, at least from mine, and I don't know about you two in the studio, but. Um, I get this impression that somehow in the U.S. there's more opportunities, but then I hear there's this caveat of being an adjunct. And if you're stuck as an adjunct, it makes it very difficult to publish, which leads us to our next question about publishing, which, Tim, you posed, asking beyond publishing, what skills do you think are necessary to break through into the 21st century academy and how can you be strategic in building these skills? It's a big question. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a long one. Uh, so, so I guess, you know, the, the reason I wanted to ask this question was because when I started at, and throughout my degree program, the emphasis was very much on publishing. And, and that's great and incredibly important to, to anybody who wants to make an academic career. Uh, at the same time, when I started applying for jobs, I felt like people were looking potentially for things that were not just the publications on my CV. Because I had publications on my CV. Uh, but I, I, I felt like it was difficult to make headway in these uh, in in these job searches, and so I was trying to think about what other skills could be um, could be beneficial to that. And I mean, it it sounds callous to use words like branding or um, you know, sound, or but you do need to market yourself, a kind of personal brand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Building building a personal brand. So so this is things like social media usage. Um, podcast. podcast. Um, one of the things that I've been noticing coming up a lot is, uh, questions of, um, digital humanities type work and knowledge of digital tools and, uh, digital storytelling ways to integrate, 
um, new electronic tools into your pedagogy, but also into your research in different ways. Um, and so sort of asking, and this is, this is also a question for the three of you and potentially any listeners beyond, um, what, what skills people think would be beneficial in, particularly in, we're thinking about the 21st century academy, what, and, and that's a term in flux, you know, what, what are people looking for now and trying to anticipate what people are looking for over the next 20, 30 years potentially, and how we can build up the skills to make ourselves more competitive in those ways. That's an excellent question, Venetia. It reminds me of uh, something I've seen in, in a couple of um, job specs, which is uh, engagement with external stakeholders. Is that what they call it these days? Yes. <laughs> well, I, I, at least I think so. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a strange phrase in a way. And, and also it's kind of strange because... I mean, I, I, I see this from two different perspectives because, I mean, I'm very much uh, in favor of, you know, engagement with of, of academia, with the private sector. And that's, you know, way Absolutely. what I've been working with um, in my last job. But um, but also I've noticed there's a kind of snobbery, I think, perhaps in the older generation of academics, but I've still seen it in a few younger ones as well. The listservs, can I just say, are getting quite nasty in my inbox. Um, there was a... a I'm not even going to say names because I don't even remember who they were. But uh, there was a discussion that came up. And in fact, one of the things I'd like to talk about in a future podcast is the idea of using social media and how it can help us and how it can hurt us. And it does seem like the older generations are in favor of having face-to-face -face interaction. However, you have other people going, well, if we didn't have TED Talks, there's no way I would have been able to see Stephen Hawking speak. So I, I think that there are ways it can be used. And I, quite personally, I don't quite understand why it's being snubbed out. Mm. I mean, I, I got the impression that it was sort of you're bringing your research to a wider audience and also wider applications, which I think is great. You know, and I think anthropology could be applied in so many uh, areas of business and politics and so on. But there is a sort of slightly ivory tower perspective sometimes that, you know, we shouldn't be doing that or it's not our role or... But then what is our role? I mean, we're here to, to share what we know, right? And hopefully learn yeah. from others. Mm. Sorry, Shihab, you're smiling. What are you thinking? Uh, no, no. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't have anything in particular about this discussion. I'm smiling because I'm thinking of all the senior academics oh, yeah. that have snubbed <laughs> the idea. Um, you know, and I think it's obviously, I think it, there's a, a wider question about how the university itself as a space is changing. It's, I mean, it's no longer possible, I think, to hold on to this idea that it's this kind of autonomous ivory tower because, even the way it's funded is not really the case anymore like that. And I think like once a lot of the older generation scholars, you know, either retire or pass away, God forbid. Um, or thankfully. <laughs> who knows? Um, then I think, you know, th this, this idea will have much less purchase because a lot of the people who will be left around are the people who have had similar experience to ours in that podcast, let's say. Um, and I think one of the major issues, I mean, related to that question of extra skills, in addition to the kind of engagement with a wider world outside the academia, is the issue of um, grant applications that uh, quite a few of the recent hires in our department, for example, and but also in other departments at the University of Oxford, um, were talking about how there's this pressure when you're um, applying to that position to show evidence that you can attract grants to the department because that's oftentimes how the department manages to fund itself. Um, and either grants from like national bodies or from private trusts. 
Um, and so that, that pressure that you might feel as a doctoral student, let's say, of you know, getting funding for your own uh, research um, kind of translates on a wider scale once you become you know, a kind of uh, full-time academic into how can I fund you know, all these other positions and attract that funding. And that's a skill that I think like very little talked about, but um, mm. that makes a big difference in probably a lot of hires. But would you say also supply and demand plays into that? Because I, I, I thinking within the idea of, um, you know, social media, I mean, you know, Neil Oliver, for example, um, he's probably, at least from my perspective, one of the most well-recognized archaeologists, yet he's, from what I understand, and Neil, if you're listening to the show, I highly apologize in advance. Um, I don't believe he's actually registered with an institution, mm. and yet we as viewers recognize him as well-respected because he obviously is doing a very good job. Mm. Um, but it seems to me that it's almost like you have to make a choice. You either go down the social media route and you lose the respective institutions or you stay You're within the institution. Nobody has a clue who you are mm. and um, you just kind of you know disappear into the nether because it's almost like you're, you're afraid to advertise yourself because you don't want to ruin your reputation. So I don't know if there's any comments about that from either of you. Well, I don't know. I think this is interesting because I've, I, perhaps it's being at the Smithsonian, which is in itself an inherently public-facing institution. But uh, I've been feeling that there, there, there's been a lot of emphasis, at least within, within certain areas. China Studies has a very vibrant Twitter scene um, and... and uh, and the Smithsonian has a very uh, active, uh, or the our Center for Folk Life and Cultural Heritage has a very active sort of set of people writing blogs and has a digital magazine and these sorts of things. So that, and, and, and I've been under the impression, especially with uh, publicly funded institutions, that the ability to translate your work to a broader audience is actually very, uh, very highly prized actually, to the point where, uh, in one of my recent interviews, somebody specifically asked me how I'd be able to disseminate information about my research to a broader audience. Um, and that was something that was explicitly asked of me by one of the interviewers. Um, so so I, think, I think these are skills, whether it's, whether it's creating online classes, classes with Coursera and edX, or whether it's uh, maintaining, maintaining a robust Twitter profile, or uh, or some or or an active blog. It is there. There is a tension because it does pull away from your peer review work, um, and it, it's probably something that needs to be balanced. But it's it's also something that I think people are interested in in different ways. So, would you say the use of social media? Um, is actually growing and people are going, you know, forget this. If I can put it on Twitter and get the information out, I'll just do it. I don't, I, I would agree with the first half of that sentiment. I'm not sure about the second half though. Maybe, maybe um, not like Trump. We won't use Twitter. Maybe something else. <laughs> yeah. Have, oh my goodness. Let's, yeah, not let's, not, let's, let's move on, moving on, moving on. But um, I do th I do think people are I, I, I've noticed a good number of academics increasingly using Twitter uh, to disseminate uh, to to interact with other academics and to disseminate some of their research pro uh, research outputs a little bit more broadly. Sometimes it's as simple as saying, "Hey, I just published this article," and then putting a link in your in your tweet 
to the article that you published, even if it's behind a paywall. Um, or in other cases, it's engaging with recent news and, and weighing in with people's thoughts on recent news. That's something that, that benefits from being a little bit less vulnerable and precarious. If you're ensconced in a position, it's a little bit easier to weigh in with your thoughts on, on potentially sensitive news. Um, but, but I do find that people are engaging with Twitter a little bit more, but also trying to balance that, uh, with, with peer reviewed work. So it's not, it's not in place of doing one's peer reviewed work. It, it's sort of as if there's enough time in the day, it's on top of your work trying to publish in peer reviewed journals. Well, seeing as we're, we're running short on time, um, considering you were talking about peer-reviewed journals and finding time, uh, what about teaching and the fact that it seems quite undervalued within um, our area of expertise? Um, well, yeah, I think f uh, teaching is one of those things which is also part, a part of the thing I was talking about, about um, selection criteria not being very clear, um, is that often there are positions for which you apply um, that, you know, advertise themselves as being like, you know, all research, you know, you, you really need to have a solid research profile. But then if you can't teach the classes that you'll actually be asked to teach in practice, um, then you won't get that position. And I think there's this strange phenomenon whereby, on one hand, teaching is kind of officially devalued in those selection criteria. But on the other hand, it's an integral part of a lot of the positions you'll get as an early career academic. I mean, the position I have currently is one of the exceptional cases where teaching is discouraged um, in terms of how the position is structured, the contract is structured. Um, but in most cases, whether you'll be an adjunct, a one-year lecturer, or even a one-year postdoc, um, it's very much um, you know, asked of you, either formally or informally, to be uh, teaching. And yet somehow, teaching doesn't seem to be part of you know, the selection criteria or like the, the thing that academics in selection committees seem to value. Um, so. it, 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 what about you, Venetia? Well, I mean, from my perspective, I'd say that from some of the academics that I've talked to, and um, I'm working with two academics actually at the moment to get an edited volume together, and um, they are they have a, a good position as lecturers, lecturers, but it leaves very little time for their own research. Mm -hmm. And the impression that I've got sometimes is that if you want to go into academia, either you should focus on being a lecturer and leave less time for your own research or you focus on more of your own research but you leave aside those skills of being of teaching so it's almost like you, you've got to pick one or the other um, in practice and that's not really necessarily stated up front um, but that that's the impression that I've, I've got from the academics that I've known. Well, what about in the US Tim what's been your experience? Um, well, in the U.S., so the U.S. Ph.D. programs are a little bit different where there's a one takes a lot of a good number of actual. There's a great deal of coursework involved before writing one's uh, thesis or dissertation. Um, and a lot of time that your your time as a graduate student will also be part funded by being a teaching assistant in classes and things like that. And so one build in many cases, one is able to build up a little bit more of a teaching profile and I think in the U.S., the U.S. system have, uh, with such a, with its wealth of small liberal arts colleges, 
actually, it's in some cases very important to have that teaching experience. The small liberal arts colleges are teaching focused institutions. And uh, mm, to the extent that I have experience with this, it seems like um, without tremendous teaching experience, it's almost not even worth applying for many of those positions, especially especially in something like China studies, where a small college, if they're going to hire somebody to study to teach Chinese about China, it's going to be they're also going to expect language teaching uh, as well as culture class teaching. And so you, one should really have a background in that before before even applying because it'll be teaching five or six courses a, uh, a, an academic year, mm-hmm. um, whereas at a bigger institution, it might be just three or four ac- uh, courses an academic year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I do. I, I think I think it depends on the the institution to which you're applying in the United States, um, and but but certainly, the, I, I have noticed that that professors at graduate at postgraduate institutions at graduate schools your advisors will often encourage you to focus more on your research than your teaching. Uh, and, and that can be, that can certainly be a pull in, you, you might feel a pull in the directions uh, that, that we were just hearing discuss is like you, you kind of focus on one or the other. Um, and, and the professors at those institutions, they're generally research-oriented institutions. And so they'll also try to encourage you to do research. And um, I, I, think, I think actually in the United States, teaching is actually quite important to getting a job, but not necessarily quite important to your graduate education. Mm-hmm. Wow, interesting. Um, and, and that's the, that's the, the pull that you have to navigate. Okay. Non- on that, just before we move yeah. on, actually, there was uh, the exam. My doctoral examiner. Another point he made was that um, even if you're not applying for a teaching job, try and build up your teaching um, profile, so to speak, um, just so that you know it, it, it's a bonus. It's always a bonus, just in case they can pull you in for a class or something like that. If you get a post, a research position. Sure, sure. Well, um, I think the last comment I guess I want to give before we kind of wrap this up is given you know there's so we could talk about this until the dog you know the cows come home but Hmm. um, what solutions would you suggest for the sorts of topics that we've discussed together do you have any comments things that you you wish could be done maybe within academia Um, Well, I think one very simple thing, and I think going off what was said earlier about the difference between U.S. and U.K. uh, job descriptions uh, would be to go more in a kind of U.K. direction, I would say, Um, but but be even more detailed about what kinds of things do selection committees want out of the potential candidate. And not just in in a general sense of, you know, uh, what the institution expects, but also what does what do the people that are actually on the selection committee want, right? Because these people aren't the institution in general. They're usually a group of five academics inside that institution. Um, and making explicit some of the more implicit criteria uh, would be an enormous help, if only for the candidate to decide whether he'll apply or not for that, which is, you know, uh, will save a lot of time, actually, mm-hmm. like if you are applying to all these positions. Sure. Venetia? Um, I think also related to that um, is that, as we all know, 
there's probably going to be fewer and fewer positions available um, with the cuts to academic funding um, and so on, departments getting smaller. Do you think it's more within the humanities, less in the sciences? I mean, I couldn't say. I get that impression, but I couldn't say. But I would just say that I think um, within both humanities and sciences, there needs to be an acceptance of academics who perhaps go and work in the private sector for a few years and then come back. The impression I've been getting is that, you know, if you go and work in the private sector, then, you know, it it will be harder and harder to get back into it. Um, And even there's there's one academic I spoke to and I mentioned that I was doing that. And jokingly, he said, oh, you shouldn't have done that. And then laughed. But it, it was a kind of expression of a sentiment that's still around. And I think that's very unrealistic because... As we all know, there is that round of doing the applications and that can take time, that can take a year. And also if you're waiting for a good position to come up, you haven't seen one, then, you know, do you sit around twiddling your thumbs and getting getting nothing coming into, you know, your bank account? Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, so some people will need to go into the private sector and work and then try and come back into academia. That's a reality nowadays. Mm. I think departments should accept that. Yeah, and Tim, how do you feel? Um, I my general feeling is that I would like to see uh, graduate programs or, or programs working with their graduate students um, doing doing more to to prepare their students for these various expectations. Mm. Um, I was very fortunate; Ohio State cottoned on very quickly to the fact that academia, that the nature of academia was changing the professionalization of the academic, um, for lack of a better term, and to be redundant profession, um, it has, is forcing different, and, and budget cuts austerity programs are for, forcing different, different types of graduate students and, and preparing graduate students better for those. Um, for for these new requirements, whether it's taking t- uh, being accepting to people who have taken time off, uh, or off is not the right word, who have gone off to the private sector for a period of time, or accepting to people who have ta- who have worked hard as adjuncts for a period of time, yeah. or whether it's uh, preparing graduate students for um, for these, uh, as I was suggesting, with these extra skills uh, uh, with grant writing workshops um, uh, with uh, information about social media use and how to build a profile with uh, ideas about uh, with constant workshops on new digital tools and how to use them and incorporate them into your work. All of these things I think would would help uh, early career researchers and uh, be better prepared for the academic the realities facing us now. Well, I want to thank all three of you for coming to the show. Um, It's been a pleasure hearing your opinions, hearing your voices. And I I hope the viewers at home um, have some ideas about um, things that maybe they would like to fix or at least discuss within academia. Uh, So with that, I say uh, thank you for coming to Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Anne Wand. Um, And of course, I'd like to thank our guests, Shihab, Venetia, and Tim for joining us at the studio this afternoon. And for those of you listeners who've enjoyed the show and would like to hear about more topics for early career researchers or just send a rant, preferably a nice rant, 
Uh, you can contact me on Twitter at Anne Wand, as in magic, one. Uh, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and uh, have a great week.